From the History Yogi podcast, this is Dave. When we think about Southeast Asia during the Cold War, we usually think just about Indochina and the Vietnam War. But British counterinsurgency strategies and engagement with nationalist elites in Malaya and Singapore also influence America's anti-communist policies in the region. Today, we speak to Associate Professor Ngoi Wenqing from the Singapore Management University about his book, Arc of Containment. We discuss why Britain and America shared ideas on containing communist threats in Southeast Asia and how Singapore and Malaya managed the transition from British imperialism to American hegemony during the Cold War. So thanks very much, Prof Nguyen, for joining me today. To start off, what motivated you to take a second look at European and US hegemony in Southeast Asia during the Cold War? Yeah, so thanks very much for having me, Dev. And you've asked a question that uh, takes me back to my graduate school woes, actually. I was struggling to find a topic that would be sustainable and could really, that I could really dig into. And as I was casting about, I'm going to just give a shout out to some friends and uh, former students. Really grateful for them just saying to me off the top of their heads, have you ever thought about the story of Britain withdrawing from Singapore in the late 1960s? And the fact is that it occurred exactly the same time as the United States was struggling in Vietnam. Isn't there a story here? And this was something unexpected for me because up to that point, I'd been looking at US foreign relations history actually in the Middle East. And I was actually quite interested in the Israel-Palestine conflict. I didn't expect to circle back to Southeast Asia. And so as I started looking into British withdrawal and US and Vietnam, I discovered, and of course it's been written about, that there was a lot of American anxiety that this only other white power, white country, was actually withdrawing at the same time, leaving them all alone to so continue to hold the torch or hold the flag for Western civilization as communism started to gain ground, or at least perceived to gain ground in Indochina. And once I started digging into that, I found a tremendous number of documents. And this led me further back into the early 60s, into the 50s, all the way until I discovered that actually it seems as if when people were looking at the Vietnam War, which is probably the most heavily written and some would more critical people would say it's a topic of US and Europe in Southeast Asia, as I started to look more and more into it, it would seem that people would look at precisely the documents that I was looking at and they would zero in, obviously because their lens was quite Vietnam-centric, they would zero in on the Vietnam mansions, obviously French colonialism and its decline and everything. And yet at the same time, side by side, you would see Britain, you would see Malaya, you would see Singapore consistently mentioned as well. But these would tend to be sort of shunted to the periphery of any Vietnam-centric study, which is completely expected, right? But as I dug into it, the story just opened up and I was able to find that a kind of British, American, Malaya, Singapore narrative was interwoven with the Vietnam War story throughout. And it was necessary for me to tell it because obviously it was uh, overlooked. And that's once it exploded, it was possible for me to just keep on running with this story. And I found that, like I said, unexpectedly, I was going to be telling a story about Malaya and Singapore, which in many ways took me into knowing my country <laughs> and my neighbor 
for the very first time all over again. So that was the discovery. Yeah. Why were the British and Americans so concerned about the Chinese diaspora in Southeast Asia after World War II? And what was the situation like in Singapore? Yeah, this is really, I think, central to what my book is, is trying to get at, which is that the Chinese diaspora and Anglo-American perceptions of China or communist rule China's influence in Southeast Asia, these things were core to the way in which the Americans and the British pursued their co-op policy. So I think in simplest terms, British and US racial thinking tended to imagine that the Chinese diasporic links crossed all Southeast Asian boundaries, right? So from Singapore to Malaya, to Thailand, Philippines, to Indonesia, and all these different places have Chinese minorities, some of which are much larger in proportion, like in Singapore and Malaya, uh, but they're still numbering in the millions. By the 1950s, early 50s, it's numbering in something like 10 million ethnic Chinese and so on. And so the British and American racial thinking saw these 10 million Chinese as interconnected with each other and plugged into mainland China. Obviously, there is a certain aspect of racial caricaturing here, as if all ethnic Chinese, despite the fact that many have been in Southeast Asia for several centuries, that in some ways they are still alive to sort of mainland politics and they're going to be stimulated by some kind of baiting call to arms or something like that. That's what I think the British and Americans were very worried about. And of course, they had evidence of some of this, right? Even before World War II, you've got ethnic Chinese who are really excited by the Chinese Revolution in 1911. And of course, a lot of good works out there about Malayan and Singapore history, they, they document that there are mass marches, there's a lot of intellectual ferment, there's a tremendous evidence of disruptive potential because of a mass potential of a mass movement. And of course, in Singapore, when you've got uh, Chinese numbering at something like 75 to 78% of the population, they've come in, majority of them come in over the 19th century. So the belief of the Brits and the Americans is, is that while these guys are not even a generation removed from what's happening in the mainland, one finger flicked by the mainland and all of a sudden, these people will probably be, you know, alerted and link up with each other. And there'll be a huge sort of Chinese diasporic menace that will cross all the boundaries across Southeast Asia. So that's what they were, I think, imagining. Of course, like I said, there's also evidence of prosperous Chinese, particularly Malayan and Singaporean Chinese who are donating to the anti-Japanese effort from 1930s onwards. So it does not take very much of a leap of the imagination, I think. I mean, if we're going to be charitable, obviously, to the, the Western powers and their insecurities about the populations that are subject to them, that if a clarion call sounds in Beijing, surely everybody will link arms because there is a certain kind of ethnic affiliation or affinity that will just awaken all of them. And clearly after 1949, this gets even worse, right? Because the communist threat is seen as a, a kind of a diametric opposition to Western capitalism. And of course, it doesn't help that the Malayan Communist Party is 95% ethnic Chinese. And of course, the Malayan Communist Party leadership makes many made many claims that they're not really after the fact right it's many years after the fact they, they make claims they're not really connected to china but a lot of their propaganda signals that they are part of a kind of worldwide marxist movement and none of this is to say that they were or were not actually linked to china 
but the way that they represented themselves at the time spoke immediately to the prejudices of a kind of racial thinking of strategy. So you've got the Malayan Communist Party that is conducting jungle warfare. And for a while, they're actually quite popular with many ethnic Chinese who may not even be communist-minded in Malaya, right? There's a certain kind of knee-jerk anti-British type of thing. And of course, Malayan Communist Party guerrillas were, were heroes in some ways during the Japanese occupation. So it's almost easy to sympathize with them, which obviously freaks British uh, and American authorities out. And of course, in Singapore, it's urban, it's not jungle warfare, but it's pretty clear that there are a number of CCP, Chinese Communist Party agents who have come into Singapore. How many of them? How wide or deep their influence is that? I think is a little bit more difficult to be clear about, but they certainly claim credit, right? Through the Malayan Communist Party, they're more than happy to say that, oh, our graduates or our and everything are operating and steering in the Chinese cultural organizations, in the Chinese language schools. They are the forefront or they're the vanguard in the communist language, right? They're the vanguard of trade unions. And so the demonstrations, the strikes that are anti-British, they immediately get smooshed together in, in terribly oversimplified and reductive ways. The idea is that, therefore, the ethnic Chinese in Singapore and Malaya are working with the CCP and Beijing. And so these... This interconnectivity that is assumed, there's ample evidence for it, for those who want to sort of, they have an axe to grind. There's ample evidence for you to make leaps of the imagination. And like I said, those leaps don't take much effort. And in the end, I think the Anglo-American concern is that this interconnected Chinese menace could overthrow Western power. I will say one more thing about this, which is that if we're starting to think, hey, this Chinese menace is entirely a figment of imagination, right? It, it can't possibly be that way. There's no evidence that it would ever operate at that kind of transnational level. Well, just prior to the Chinese Communist Revolution, we've got the Japanese invasion and occupation of huge amounts of Southeast Asia. And so from the Americans and even British point of view, but more so the Americans, the idea of an Asian menace pouring out of East Asia, linking up all the way through Southeast Asia and just creating this long belt through the sub-region that is ethnically dominated by an East Asian threat. It's not far from a reality because they've experienced it and they've experienced it in a very intense, humiliating type of way. So Japan eventually, when it becomes an ally, gets replaced obviously, by the Chinese threat and the jump towards thinking that Chinese threat can just awaken all the Chinese along the way, that becomes almost too easy to, to imagine. Now, the Americans drew special inspiration from British Malaya while searching for an anti-communist strategy. Mm -hmm. A report concluded that the West could defeat communism in Southeast Asia only if it were able to quote, identify itself with nationalism, unquote. So how did the British achieve this in Malaya? Mm. This question is very challenging. Thanks for asking it. And it's because I would say that the British, what they achieved may have looked like they had identified themselves with Malayan nationalism. But of course, the reality on the ground is a lot more complicated. And even my my book, when I analyzed it, I had to leave a lot of details on the cutting room floor. If not, the book would not be about 
US Southeast relations, Southeast Asian relations. It would be about the Malayan nationalist story. So I think what Britain managed though was actually rallying different elite groups. So ethnic Chinese elites, ethnic Malay elites, and then of course eventually ethnic Indian elites. Of course, the two largest groups, ethnic Chinese and ethnic Malays, they made up something like 88% of the population altogether. And Malaya specifically in those days, the Chinese were almost 40% of the population. And of course, the Malays were above 40% of the population. So not necessarily equal, but really not far away. So they're very huge numbers. And I think what Britain, what I argue is that Britain didn't necessarily awaken or tap a kind of like pan-Malayan, multi-ethnic unity, but actually was able to very shrewdly pander and cultivate specific ethnic elites, goals and interests in an independent Malaya. And part of their, if we're going to give the Brits any credit, part of their responsibility or their achievement would be to make the ethnic Malay elites and the ethnic Chinese elites desperate to achieve independence and say to them, if you guys cannot get a political bargain together, there will be no independence for you. And so this sent, obviously, ethnic Malay nationalists and ethnic Chinese nationalists, which were at odds, into a completely unlikely union, right? What is the heart of uh, the original alliance coalition that eventually becomes whatever it is today, the BN, right? But the original alliance is built out of this anxiety, a kind of relentless pursuit of, of a faster and earlier nationalism and coming together to say, okay, you know what? Our alliance coalition, will call it interracial unity, but in many ways, when we go around campaigning, it's quite clear that when people vote for us, the alliance and ethnic Chinese is basically voting for the Malayan Chinese Association. And ethnic Malay is clearly voting for UMNO, right? But I think the point here is that what Britain achieved was also in many ways very fragile and it was not at all expected. There was certainly skepticism from the Americans once in a while. Like we're just so surprised that this even happened. We've done our homework. And if we're looking at it, these guys have no business being bad fellows. And yet, something happened. And of course, I would say, so Britain achieved it by making people desperate to have to work together. The pragmatism of the elites on both sides, these two largest groups, I think, and Chinese, brought them together. And particularly, we're talking about the pragmatism of somebody like Uncle Abdul Rahman, who rose to leadership of Amno, actually being a Malay nationalist, right? And saying that Malaya belongs to the Malays. But once he rises to that leadership, he discovers well, you know what, I, I guess I have to moderate this Malay ethnic nationalism. And when he moderated, he seemed to go full tilt with that moderation, that really a kind of pan-Malayan or interracial unity was really what he cared about, at least to the extent that the Alliance Coalition could exist as sort of like separate ethnic groups together. So, so he went with that. Tan Cheng Lok of the ethnic Chinese elites, the, the Malayan Chinese Association, he could not see, I think, a future for even his own political legacy. He had been active in Malayan nationalism for the longest time, right? 1920s, 1930s and onwards. And he could not see himself having a place in the future of Malay, the Malayan nationalist story 
without that bargain. So I've said a lot about this. I'll take a step back to just to remind of the overarching point, which is that Britain may have looked like it identified itself with Malay nationalism. What it actually did was it identified itself with elite nationalists. And it wasn't a pan-Malayan sort of truly, I think, multi-racial, multi-ethnic type of thing. It was really a kind of political bargain between different elites of different ethnic groups. Now, you reveal in your book that the British paid great attention to how Americans understood their counterinsurgency campaign in Malaya. Mm. What was the true situation in Malaya and why did the Americans put so much faith into British strategies? Mm. So there are multiple uh, questions here, right? Dev, you're really testing me. <laughs> but I think the first thing we want to say about the true situation, uh, to the extent that the documents tell us, is that it was against the Malayan Communist Party guerrilla fighters. Britain and its Malayan allies on the ground basically prosecuted a, a, a brutal extermination campaign, which benefited from a lot of anti-Chinese hatred because the Malayan Communist Party itself had gone around trying to settle scores and do reprisals against those that they called collaborators with the Japanese, right? Immediately after World War II. And of course, they went after a lot of ethnic Malays. So it became almost a kind of like a racial war that Britain was able to harness against the Malayan Communist Party. As I said earlier, 95% of them were ethnic Chinese. So it was brutal. It was an extermination campaign. More Malayan Communist Party fighters were killed than even were originally in existence immediately after World War II in terms of the numbers. And, and of course, they were also beheaded because the British brought along headhunters, Dayak headhunters, and of course they used the decapitated heads to, to do their bean counting, as it were, right? The numbers of people that they had killed. And they actually concealed these numbers from the Americans, even though maybe there's no real reason that the Americans would become squeamish about this because they obviously conducted similar types of extermination campaigns in the Philippines and in parts of Latin America and everything. So, but they concealed it. And when they concealed it, what they were really promoting quite aggressively to the Americans was look at the social, economic, and political reforms. Once these things are in place, they will transform the society and eliminate all the foundational reasons why there are even communist insurgents in the first place. If people are exposed to the wonders of Kind of prosperous capitalism, they will just naturally not want this alien concept of communism. In fact, in many ways, capitalist production and consumption, these are actually universal, right? So this spoke to an American sensibility because this is really also what they were thinking, right? When it came to the reconstruction of Europe, right? That extremism it breeds where there's poverty and want. Strife comes out of that. If we can recover Germany, if we can recover Japan, then the prosperity will just moderate our behavior. Extremism will disappear. So that's what they believed. And it's not as if the Americans were not well-versed in counterinsurgency in very savage types of ways. But because the British represented this, which I think anybody with half any sensibility would, would have known that this is really a little bit of a, a pageant. But I think the Americans wanted to believe this. And part of why they 
were more willing to buy what the British were selling is because I think, at least based on what I was finding, is the Americans were very admiring of the British, of all the colonial powers after World War II, the British end up becoming the most tenacious. The French leave, the Dutch leave and everything. But the British remain. The Malayan Communist Party is defeated, or at least it just takes to the hills, as it were, and just becomes just a nuisance in comparison to where it's still raging in Indochina and so on. And so they're very admiring of the British. They're more willing to listen to the British. The British represent something that is, I think on its face, very problematic and difficult to believe, but it becomes something that is so attractive because it speaks to the American sensibilities of how counterinsurgency ought to work. Sure, there's going to be killing, but we can avoid all of this killing if we can just reform and transform the sort of society and economy in this very dramatic type of way. Now, you point out that the Americans were far more interested in the formation of Malaysia in 1963 than most people realize. Malaysia would, quote, complete a wide anti-communist arc enclosing the South China Sea. Why did they also view Malaysia as the best way to quash Singapore's leftist movement? Yes, uh, and that was something that for me was a discovery too, right? That Sure, we can say something about the British leaving Singapore and that's just like completely strategic and that was the starting point of my research journey. But as I discovered when the early 19, looking at the early 1960s, there is so much interest in the formation of Malaysia on the part of the Americans. They have a geostrategic imagination. You, know, you can sort of imagine a kind of Robert McNamara or any random secretary of state or defense secretary or whatever sort of pointing to a big map. Right and going, oh, look at this long belt of friendly countries and it goes around South China Sea. So in their imagination, Malaysia is right at the exact place to link Thailand to Philippines on the other side and then they enclose the South China Sea. So I unexpectedly found a lot of documents about this. And as I dug into it, the huge part of the interest isn't just that sort of map type of that picture that makes them all excited. But it's also a trust in the Prime Minister of Malaya, the Tunku Abdul Rahman, right? As mentioned a little bit earlier, obviously the Malaya has already succeeded with the British in decimating the Malayan Communist Party. So the record of Malaya, the track record of anti-communism and successful anti-communism is really, it's captured the imagination of the Americans. And the idea is that they trust him because they have met him. Now, a few things come together because of this, right? One of them is when Malaya becomes independent, 1957, this is also the same year that America's favorite pupil, who of course also had his own agenda in the Philippines, Ramon Magsaysay, he dies that year. So it's a kind of like a replacement. Of course, they don't never acknowledge this, but this is the way I sort of see it, that their favorite son in the Philippines exits the stage, but in comes... Prime Minister of Malaya, Tengku Abdul Rahman, is articulate. He comes across as extremely modern. They become very enamored of him. He visits the United States for the first time in 1960. And he basically charms the people. And this is something that we don't necessarily think of when it comes to Tengku Abdul Rahman. Because I suppose a lot of like Singapore history sees it from this very acrim acrimonious split, split between Singapore and Malaysia. 
but he's very charming to the Americans. They really like him. And so the expectation is that this anti-communist leader who is super reliable and speaks English so well, I mean, the comments inside the dossiers are always, oh, he speaks with this British accent. He speaks, he's, he's more well-spoken than, than the Vietnamese. He's more well-spoken than Sukarno. I mean, he endears himself to them, obviously, because there's a certain kind of affinity between British culture and American culture. English is the, is the glue that brings them together. And so the belief is, once Singapore gets absorbed into Malaysia, Malayan authorities will just snuff out what some of the uh, analysts are calling the Singapore Reds. So there's some fear, obviously, of ethnic Chinese in Singapore and their links to China. Once they end up in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur will just annihilate them in the same way that they destroyed the Malayan Communist Party. Uh, so that's the faith that they have in it. So despite the focus on British and American strategies, you are also careful to include the perspective of Southeast Asian leaders who took advantage of America's support for anti-communists to strengthen their own power and relevance. So with Britain withdrawing from the region in the late 1960s and early 1970s, how did Singapore's relationship with America evolve? I'll start by, when we talk about this Singapore-America relationship, I'll start by going, obviously, the Singaporeans wanted Britain to remain. There's a certain predictability to it. Singapore foreign policy was largely conservative, right? Because the Singaporean political elites were largely leaning towards London. There's a kind of cultural affinity. Many of them are educated abroad in the British uh, tradition and the system and everything. They would have wanted the British to remain because there is a certain track record that they at least know, even of course there's a blot, even though there's of course a blot of Britain surrendering the country, but at least they know it. Another part of it is they would have wanted the British to remain to be in touch with Western capital, right? Singapore as a sort of like a global trading type of hub and everything would have wanted to be in touch with it. Britain would would have continued to keep that door open. And of course, it was a practical necessity. We know that the British bases in Singapore accounted for, and the estimates are problematic here, right? For sources at the time say that maybe between 30 to 40,000 Singaporeans were in connection with the British bases. But much later, in around 2015 or so, Singapore Prime Minister Lee Sen Long says that up to 100,000 odd livelihoods were in some ways connected. So it's a huge number of people that are connected to Britain. So they would have wanted the British to stay, but of course the Brits refused, became increasingly bent on leaving. And so I would say the Singaporeans chose very early, Singapore political elites chose very early, by around 1966, despite Lee Kuan Yew's outburst in 1965 against the Americans, right? And for those who are interested, they can dig into this. There's a conference and goes, the Americans are terrible and they tried to turn an asset against us, etc. And they tried to bribe me and everything. So he says this, despite this outburst in 1965, by the next year already, they are mending their relations. And so, as I can recall, even American analysts are looking at Lee Kuan Yew's outburst and going... This outburst is a performance. He may or may not believe that personally, but he's doing that to represent a certain kind of non-aligned credentials and burnish those credentials before he eventually then leans towards us. And so they're already suspecting this. And indeed, that's kind of what happened from 66 onwards. 
Singapore puts in inks military procurement contracts for the Vietnam War. And so Singaporeans are supplying and, and they're not supplying weapons, but they're supplying all kinds of other things that are associated with you. So like the military campaign in the Vietnam War. And the as the CIA points out, by 1967, this is just a year later, by 1967, this amounts to 15% of Singapore's national income that the military procurements. And just for comparison, the British bases amount to about 20% of Singapore's national income. So there's a considerable amount of Singapore's national income that is attached to activities that have to do with military expenditure of some type, or 35%. So, and of course, by 1967, when Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew visits Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson in the US, he actually writes him a, a private note after the, the visit and goes, you have our unequivocal support for your efforts in the Vietnam War. And I think the this is practical. They're looking for a new, reliable Western power who will replace the vacuum that the British will leave behind. This is an ascendant power anyway, despite the kind of growing doubt about what's happening in Vietnam. It's an ascendant power. It's the richest country in the world. We just need to convince them to stay in this region and our connection with them will have to become stronger and stronger. I mean, I'm sort of vocalizing on behalf of a kind of Singapore elite, political elite thought. And so Lee Kuan Yew and, uh, becomes an apologist for the Vietnam War. He's able to express it as an Asian leader and Americans really appreciate it because he's so eloquent. He's a charismatic speaker. It really blows people away when he's able to make it appear that Singapore is not aligned while saying, actually, we need to support what is happening in Vietnam. Like it or not, grotesque as the war effort is, we're not going to back down. Otherwise, the communists will come pouring into Singapore. And of course, in dramatic fashion, Lee Kuan Yew is, is quite expressive about this. He says, and then they'll have me by the throat or I will be hanging in the square or something like that. I think these are the various images that he provides in the apology for the Vietnam War. And so over time, 1970s, 1980s, they come together more and more deeply. American investment in Singapore by the late 60s is growing by about 100 million each year. And of course, it just deepens. And I think we will need to write a further history because my book, of course, start, closes the story in around 1976, 1977. But uh, uh, the next chapter needs to be written about the 80s and the 90s, the Singapore relationship with the United States immediately after the Cold War, during the war on terror, and of course, into the present and so on. To conclude, how would you assess the long-term impact of the arc of containment in Southeast Asia? Yeah, so thanks for using the phrase, arc of containment, which is of course the title of my book. I think here's where obviously historians start to get a little bit nervous, right? Where you start to do a bit of gazing into the, the crystal ball and everything. I think one thing that is curious about the long-term impact is the strange invisibility of American predominance. And that is because the pro-US or anti-communist countries that I write about in the arc of containment, right? These are the ASEAN countries, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, Indonesia, of course, joining the arc of containment after the massacre of the Indonesian Communist Party mid-60s. There's a certain invisibility that happens because these countries profess to be non-aligned. 
and yet their relations with the United States are really deep and broadening and deepening. So bizarrely, I think we we will have this sort of contradictory narrative. I think when people think about it, they'll realize that it's contradictory, one of which is the Americans lost in Vietnam and so they left. And then you hear in the present, China is challenging American predominance in Southeast Asia. Now, how do these things even square with each other? If the Americans left and withdrew or whatever, what is this predominance that uh, China is challenging? And so that's where the arc of containment is part of the story, right? Which is that actually the Americans did not leave. And not only did they not leave, they actually in some ways bedded themselves down, right? They got even deeper into the region and regional heads of state wanted America to remain. In fact, as the Vietnam War started to go south, the nations, the states that made up the arc of containment really wanted America to stay. So one part of what I would say about the long-term impact is this strange disconnect that people, I think, continue to carry around, which is that there is no arc of containment, I guess, and that yet China is challenging the arc of containment. If indeed it is challenging it, that's obviously another debate. And as a result of that, the question that is asked about the alignments, loyalties, friendliness of ASEAN countries tends to operate out of that strange contradiction, right? Oh, and I'm oversimplifying here, but I think this tends to happen in sort of like the pundit universe because of that disconnect, which is, you know, everybody's not aligned. They're kind of like balancing. They don't know which one they want to choose. But of course, the story is a lot more complicated, which is that, and the story is complicated because they already chose one much earlier. And that relationship is 40, 50 years old already by this time when we get to the 2020s. Yes, that relationship is testy. Sometimes there are misgivings and everything, but those relationships are 50 years old. Now, whether or not this fuel and this foundation is rocky and can be smashed to bits, by whatever diplomacy and economic relations and, and, and truly substantial economic relations with China, whether that will replace it, substitute it or whatever, that I think is a story for the future, which you know, we get a little bit nervous about talking about when we are historians. But I think you can't really talk about that without asking questions of how much can you reverse off that history or is there, I mean, if we want to simplify, a certain kind of sunk cost, right? Do you switch patrons? And of course, some ASEAN countries appear to be more willing to switch patrons, if I want to sort of, again, be a bit reductive about it. And some countries are unwilling. And that is a question for the next book. <laughs> Hopefully, I will, I'll be able to start to think about as well. 